open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. It's Jonah chapter 1. While you're turning there, I, I want to thank you for having me this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian Kill. Uh, I am one of the lay pastors at North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. And I come with greetings from our church. Uh, it's a high privilege and, and my honor to bring you the word to you this morning. Uh, I'm here with my wife, Nikki, uh, who is Harry, Pastor Harry's sister, uh, and our five children. We have four boys and a, and a baby girl. Uh, I just want to let you know that we've been praying for you as well, and we're so encouraged to hear of the work that God is doing in the city of Manhattan through this ministry. Um, if you've turned to Jonah 1, if you're able to find it, and you're physically able, please rise to your feet as I read the text for this morning. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we need you this morning. Lord, you are the creator of the universe. Uh, there is no single molecule that is out of your control. And so we ask that you would turn uh, and send your spirit to us, Lord. We acknowledge that we are weak. We acknowledge that we are sinners, Lord. But God, we just ask that you would uh, shine your light on us in this dark world. God, in my weakness, uh, though I have a stuttering tongue, um, would you please let your word bear much fruit this morning. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I know you guys are going to Luke, uh, the book of Luke, uh, where it's filled with a bunch of common stories. And just like Jonah, um, many people know the story, right? Jonah is a prophet. 
in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jonah is called to preach the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians, they're brutal people who harass and abuse and mock the Israelites. And Jonah, instead of obeying God's command to go preach to the Ninevites, decides to get on a boat and head in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And then God sends a storm. And the only way to stop the storm is to get Jonah off of the boat. So the other passengers throw him overboard and leave him for dead. But God sends a fish to swallow Jonah to preserve his life. It's the basic synopsis of the first half of Jonah. Now the book of Jonah employs a bunch of literary devices and techniques that make this such a fascinating book. And while we'll get to some of these today, one of the things I want to point out before we dive in is the direction that Jonah is headed, the direction that Jonah is headed. In verse 3, as soon as Jonah decides to run away from the presence of the Lord, we see him going down to Joppa. And while we'll get to some of these today, um, this is a cardinal description, right? It's also intended to be a moral and spiritual description of where he is headed. He's spiritually descending. This is the start of his downfall. This is supported by the next sentence in the same verse. So he paid the fare and went down into it. And then again in verse 5, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down. And as he descends and descends and descends into darkness, we see sin rotting Jonah's soul. We begin to see Jonah go deeper into sin and the effects that an unrepentant heart has on a man made in the image of God. And that's what we're going to explore today. In this text... Through Jonah chapter 1, we can identify seven habits unrepentant sinners exhibit in their rebellion. Seven habits of highly unrepentant people. And we'll explore each one as we read through the narrative. Habit number one, unrepentant people run away. Unrepentant people run away. So again in verse 2, we read that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Two questions here, right? First, What does it mean to run away from the presence of the Lord? Jonah would be very familiar with Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So we're not talking about an actual place where you can run from God, but it's running from any known influence of God. Sinclair Ferguson says it's running, quote, from the place of prayer and service, he was fleeing from the sphere of evangelism to which God was calling him, end quote. Today, that would be the equivalent of not showing up to church, uh, avoiding fellowship, avoiding calls and texts from other members. And Jonah was leaving Israel, God's promised land to his chosen people. And this is important to remember throughout the narrative. That was the first question. Second question, why was Jonah running from the presence of the Lord? You might have heard sermons before about how Jonah was prejudiced against the Ninevites, that he was a racist, that he didn't want the Ninevites to receive grace from God and wanted God to be a God for the Israelites only. And it's true, right? The Israelites, God's chosen people, were living in unrepentance. They worshipped other gods. And Jonah was sent to preach repentance to his own people. But now God was telling Jonah to stop preaching to the Israelites and preach to these heathens, these savages, that of all people, Jonah wants nothing more than to see them destroyed. And now he's being sent 
to save them from just that. He knows that God is compassionate and forgiving. And by Jonah's going over there, he knows that there's a chance for repentance to be granted. There's a chance that they can avert God's wrath. And if God blesses another nation that's not Israel, he thinks, the Israelites are no longer God's chosen people. God will withhold Israel's blessings and give it to the Ninevites. So when we unpack this, it's not just that he's a racist, though that's bad, because Jonah is happy to serve God until he doesn't want to, until it's no longer on his terms, but God's. We're a lot like that, aren't we? I'll serve here, and I'll serve there, but this whole thing, no way. I'll serve on the worship team, I'll watch the children's ministry, but evangelism? (laughs) Nope. Count me out. Jonah was happy to serve God under his terms, not God's. And we know this because Jonah goes out of his way to the opposite part of the known world. Because if he does that, God will find someone else, won't he? If I hide just long enough, the church will call on someone else to serve. And you need to know that serving under our own terms reveals a heart motive of who really takes priority. It's not God's church. It's my church. It's not God's ministry. It's my ministry. So a quick point of application here. Prayerfully consider the ways in which the Lord wants you to serve. If God reveals to you a need in the church, a gap, stop hiding, and humbly submit to the Lord. Jonah's attitude toward the Ninevites is more superficial than anything else. It's symptomatic of his pride. He was willing to serve as a prophet. He was more than willing to prophesy the things that God was revealing to him. But he was only willing to serve under the capacity that he wanted to. And that's precisely what sin is, right? Sin is what we do when we think we know what's better than what God does. Whether the symptoms manifest themselves in prejudice, in jealousy, or in hardening the heart altogether, people sin when we justify why our ways are right versus submitting to God's ways. This is what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve believed that God was withholding something good from them and decides to eat the fruit. And this is what happens when Jonah believes he's got a better plan than God's and decides to defect as a prophet of the Jehovah God. Verse 3 tells us twice that he ran away from the presence of the Lord. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He needed to run. Why? Because in the depths of our heart, we know our own rebellion, don't we? And so we need to avoid church members. We need to change zip codes. We need to find distractions. And there's this overall uneasiness this entire time because it's impossible to escape God. Just like Adam needed to flee from the open after eating the fruit. Just like Judas after he betrayed the son of man for 30 pieces of silver and he needed to escape the guilt. Just like Jonah when he defects from God. Habit number one, unrepentant people run away. Habit number two, unrepentant people seek out distractions. We seek out distractions. Verses four and five. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. 
And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So Jonah runs and God sends a massive storm. Our text says that the Lord hurls a great wind. This language is similar to Saul, King Saul, hurling a spear at David. It's vicious enough that it makes the experts on the boat scared for their lives. The mariners, they're panicking. It's like when you're on an airplane, right? There's turbulence, and then there's turbulence, right? Like it's violent. But almost all the time, the pilots aren't scared. Almost. The oxygen masks haven't come down, and the staff is relatively normal. And it's because they have a gauge on the threshold of turbulence where it's safe. So when there are no oxygen masks and the staff is calm, you can tell yourself that things are okay. But that's not the case here on this boat. It's a Category 5 hurricane. They start throwing the cargo off the ship to save themselves. This cargo makes up their livelihood. It's their profits. The oxygen masks are out. The staff is panicking. But what does Jonah do? While all of this is happening, while people are trying to save themselves, he goes down to the bottom of the ship and tries to sleep. Now, there are a lot of theories as to what this sleep means. Right? Some people believe that he went to sleep because he'd rather die than to fight for his life. He wasn't panicking because he just didn't care. Others believe that he's in deep depression. This isn't godly sorrow, but it's worldly sorrow. Just because you're sad doesn't mean that you're repentant. Some believe he was experiencing a deep but dark sadness. And others, more practically, believe that Jonah was seasick. The ship was rocking violently from the storm, and he was just trying to sleep it off. Not exactly sure myself, but what we know is that the storm happens, people panic, Jonah sleeps. And regardless of what actually caused Jonah to sleep, this is not normal, right? Any normal person would fear and tremble, like everybody else on the boat. But Jonah finds a reason to sleep, to not think about what's going on, to distract himself from facing reality to take his mind off of what matters. And when people sin, they distract themselves from reality. They wander from the truth. Most of the distractions in our lives are not inherently sinful, but they do keep us from God. They slow us down. And that can lead to the path of sin without your realizing it. With all the technology we have and with the world at our fingertips through the internet, we should have more time on our hands to read scripture, to pray, to meditate, to fellowship. Yet there are more distractions in our lives than ever before. It's so easy to divert our minds from the things of the Lord than to focus on our walk. So another point of application, for your good, for your conscience, weed out the distractions in your life. And when I say weed out, I mean to grab it from its roots and tear them out. The Christian and mathematician Blaise Pascal once said, quote, The only thing that consoles us for our miseries is diversion. And yet it is the greatest of our miseries, for it is that, diversions, above all which prevents us thinking about ourselves and leads us imperceptibly to our death. But for that we should be bored, and boredom would drive us to seek more solid means of escape. But diversion passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to our death, end quote. 
What Pascal is saying is that if every man thinks deeply enough, we will think about our lives, our sins, and what that means for the end of our life. But because we'd rather hold on to our own sins and not repent, we fill our lives with distractions to keep ourselves from thinking about eternity and our standing with God. So we fill our lives with our work, with music, movies, meaningless conversations, with irrational fears, drugs, traveling, sports, social media, anything to keep us from thinking about how, left to ourselves, wretched we really are. And only when all the layers of distractions are ripped out can you have a clearer perspective on your walk with God. Only then can you dive into the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Only then can you be stunned by the unsearchable riches of Christ, by removing the distractions. If we truly had our sights on God, a lot of our vices, a lot of our distractions, some wholesome, some neutral, some sinful, but distractions nonetheless would feel meaningless. They're only important to our flesh because they keep us from thinking about eternity. Remember there was a season in my life when I was walking in darkness for a long period. I would just watch movies back to back. I would just want to zone out on them. Anything to keep me from thinking about my sin. Anything to keep me from talking about my sin. And Jonah here, he distracts himself. He sleeps. And it seems he sleeps to avoid prayer, to distract himself from prayer. Verses 5 and 6. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah's life hangs in the balance. Yet Jonah is incapable of praying to God. In fact, the pagan has to tell Jonah to pray. A pagan has to remind him to be emotionally connected. But Jonah doesn't say anything. He stays silent. And if you've ever walked in darkness, you know this. Right? There might be fear. There might be sadness. There might even be a thought to repent. But ultimately, there's a resistance. If there's a pull toward the floor to pray, your will pulls back. There's a stubbornness. Like Pharaoh, there's a need to double down on your sin and harden your heart. Why? Because prayer exposes the filth of sin. And to do that, prayer requires humility. Prayer requires meditation. Prayer requires a removal of distractions. So show me a prayerless man, and I'll show you a starving soul that is carrying many sins. Unrepentant people seek out distractions. Habit number three, unrepentant people hide. They hide. Unrepentant people don't just run away, they hide. In Jonah's case, he hid in the boat while everyone was panicking, but he also hid by not speaking. Verses six to eight, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? The sailors here have run out of options. 
they decide to cast lots. They're basically rolling dice. They just need to get an idea of what is happening to them out of nowhere. They would not have set sail if they knew that this storm was coming. And the lots land on Jonah. And Jonah's exposed here. So the sailors ask him all sorts of questions. They start peppering him with questions. What's your job? Where are you from? What's your nationality? Like they know nothing about Jonah. They don't know who he is, where he's from, what he's done. Why? Because he stayed silent. He didn't want to reveal anything about himself. Psalm 32, 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. First, he stayed silent by not sleeping. He chose to be at his most vulnerable by sleeping instead of exposing himself. Then, he chose to stay silent by standing around the deck while the sailors around him were pleading for their lives. Private Christians often hide sins. It's also like Peter after Jesus is arrested, right? He sits with the people, but he says nothing. Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 56. Then they seized him, Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. Peter remains silent until he is addressed. Peter just wants to blend in and hide. Unrepentant people hide. Habit number four, unrepentant people lie. So the sailors ask questions, and Jonah finally responds. And with his first words, with a single breath, he lies. Lying comes in a ton of different forms, but Jonah shows us two. The very first form of lying he shows us is just blatantly lying, right? Blatantly saying something outright that just isn't true. Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is not true. Right? He's in the middle of outright rebellion against God, and he says, I fear the Lord. This is not true. This is false. If he feared the Lord, he would not be running. If he feared the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, the boat would not be in danger of breaking apart. If Jonah feared the Lord... He would not even be on that boat in the first place. But this is what he says. 1 John 1, 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So we see him lying outright, blatantly. I fear the Lord. I fear Jehovah. The second form of lying he shows us, in that same sentence, is partially confessing. Like selectively telling the truth, but conveniently leaving some things out. The Bible says that's still lying. It's like saying you got into an argument with your wife, but concealing the, concealing the fact that there's been a pattern of this for some time, or that there's rage and malice during these arguments. Here, we see Jonah lying by answering selective questions. In verse 8, they ask him five questions. The sailors ask him five questions. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? In in verse 9, Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He even tells them in verse 10 that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He answers all 
but one question. What is your occupation? He keeps that truth hidden. He's lying. He hides the fact that he is a prophet, the most damning part of his defection. Prophets don't defect. They don't run. They obey. They listen. They speak what God tells them to speak. And in sin, unrepentant sinners always lie. They never reveal anything or everything about their sinfulness, even if it's a petty detail. Only repentant sinners who come running to God like the prodigal son cover nothing. Unrepentant people always lie. Habit number five, unrepentant people numb themselves from the truth. They numb themselves from the truth. Jonah isn't confused or mistaken. He knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't care. Again, verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So subjectively, right, we've established Jonah lies when he says these words. But objectively, Jonah says wonderful truths about God that in any other circumstance should cause him to worship. But instead, they end up condemning him. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. He isn't shy about saying God's name. I fear Jehovah. I fear the God of the Hebrews, whose works are known to the ends of the earth. The God who rained down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. The God who defeated all the gods of Egypt, one by one, plague by plague, and delivered his people out from Egypt across a massive sea. The God who flattened the walls of Jericho without a single weapon being raised. The God who made the sun stand still to finish the battle. The God who killed 450 prophets of Baal in a single day. Jonah says, I fear that God. In any other situation, that should have given him goosebumps. But he is so detached from the truth. He's so accustomed to the darkness that he can confess it without being broken about his own state. He continues, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So now Jonah refers to God's dominion over everything. Like when we say, uh, Bob works day and night. We're not referring to periods of the day. We're We're saying that Bob works all day, every day in its totality. The Bible is filled with these. The most obvious one we find in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God didn't just create those two things, but the author is referring to God's creation of all things in its totality, even in the details. So Jonah here is talking about the totality of God's control, his dominion over all things, the wet sea and the dry land. He acknowledges who he's running from, the one true and living God. The one God who controls every single molecule in existence. And he can say these things and admit these things without feeling anything in his heart. We've come to a point where his heart, his conscience, has become so hard that preaching truths about God doesn't affect him. Jonah is personifying Romans 2.15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men 
by Christ Jesus. Everything he's saying is true. Everything he is saying should cause him to repent and to turn from his sin. But because he is so numb, because his conscience is so seared, he ends up testifying against himself with his words, then blessing God. So another point of application for our lives, don't misdiagnose your sick soul because of your healthy theology. Jonah had beautiful theology when he finally opened his mouth to speak to the sailors. But we know from this text that his heart was getting harder and harder with each passing verse. You know, when pastors fall to sin, like we've seen this the past few years, right? Pastors who have preached fiery, wonderful sermons, who've written books that change people's lives and perspectives on living for Christ. But we discovered sin in their lives that unequivocally disqualified them from the ministry. A preacher can preach a great sermon, yet not believe a single word that comes out of their lips, nor truly love the very people to whom they are preaching. Just because you can say wonderful things about God, just because you have strong theology, does not mean for one second that you are right with God. Just because you can tell somebody that they are in danger of the wrath of God doesn't mean that you are headed for that same wrath. Even in deep, dark, unrepentant sin, you can say truthful things. Don't mistake what you know about God and what you can say about God into thinking that you are right with God. Don't misdiagnose your sick soul because of your healthy theology. Unrepentant people numb themselves from the truth. Habit number six, unrepentant people rationalize their sin. Unrepentant people, whether they are self-delusional or openly running towards sin, they rationalize it. They normalize it. They make it make sense to them. Verse 10, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah says he is running from the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Like the one God he shouldn't be running from. And the sailors... They start to lose it. What are you doing? What have you done? To them, what Jonah has done doesn't make sense. But to Jonah, he's already rationalized it. To Jonah, it made sense for him to run away in the opposite direction. It made sense for him to think he could run away from the omnipresent God. It made sense for him to get on a ship that was dependent on the sea made by the Lord. It made sense to him. To us, reading this right now, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like a children's story. It sounds crazy. But to to the unrepentant sinner, it makes sense. It makes sense to have that extra glass of liquor. It makes sense to skip church. It makes sense to go to that party. It makes sense to date that non-believer. It makes sense to live a double life. It makes sense to look at that woman that you're not married to. It just makes sense. We read that the first king of Israel, Saul, disqualifies himself through sin. And when God appoints a new king in David, Saul spends the rest of his life fighting to keep his throne and trying to kill David. God called David to be king. He will be king. But to Saul, who was self-deceived, it made sense to try to kill David. 
Right? It made sense that if David were out of the picture, he might be able to keep the throne. It made sense to him. And to us, when we are unrepentant, it makes sense to hold on to our sin. It makes sense to make everything else not make sense just so our sin makes sense. Habit number six, unrepentant people rationalize their sin. Finally, habit number seven, unrepentant people care little for others. Sin doesn't just affect the sinner. Sin affects everyone around the sinner. Your sin isn't just about you. Sin is so destructive that it even hurts the bystanders whether you believe it or not. And you may not believe that it hurts others simply because you just don't care that it does. You only want to hold on to your sin. One obvious example, your addiction to pornography is severely damaging the way that you love and lead your wife. Some of you men, if if you're not married, unless you seek accountability and learn to rage war against it, it's going to affect your future marriage too. You think you got a handle on it. You think it's private. You think no one has to know. But in reality, you are enslaved to it. And you will never love your precious wife the way that God intended. Let's look at how Jonah's sin affects his bystanders. Starting from verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So this is not repentance. Right? This is just an acknowledgement, not a confession to God. How do we know? Because we know that God is faithful. First John, again, 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like when David confesses in Psalm 51, or when Peter breaks down in tears and when the rooster crows. But the storm continues here in Jonah. It gets worse. This is not repentance. He is not a hero offering himself up as a sacrifice. He is a selfish and stubborn sinner. The evidence against Jonah is overwhelming. This is just Jonah telling the sailors what's happening. Saul confesses, but the Lord's anger is still against him. Judas confesses, but he hangs himself. Jonah confesses, but the storm rages on. These confessions are not holy confessions wrought by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, Nevertheless, Despite this, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. The sailors, if you notice, are kind of like Jonah here. They're trying to run from God. They're trying to row to dry land. They've just heard a sermon on God who made the sea and what? The dry land. Yet they're trying to risk their lives rowing to dry land. But he watches them suffer to try and save his life. So he can do one of two things here, right? First is that he can throw himself overboard instead of making them, the sailors, culpable by telling them to throw him in. But he chooses to share his guilt with them. I've already brought judgment on myself. Now he's bringing them in. Second, more importantly, you might have guessed, He can repent. 
He can get on his knees and cry out to God. But this is not what we see. He doubles down on his sin. He hardens his heart. He sees others suffering because of his sin. They're trying to row to save his life, but he does nothing about it. Repentance is when the sinner confesses and there's a sorrow for the sin. Like David, when he runs a census and God seeks to punish Israel. Right? David, in his repentance, pleads for Israel and takes ownership of his sin. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But the sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Don't discipline them. This was my idea. This is my decision. Discipline me and me only. But Jonah cares very little for the people that he's brought into this mess with him. And the sailors, they're brought to an end. They give up. And even when they give up, they show more fear than Jonah. Verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And suddenly, the clouds dissipate. Suddenly, they're not being tossed anymore. The rain stops. There's peace. The waters are calm. And there's silence. And then we read verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The pagan men were converted despite Jonah. In the end, God did what he wanted to do, and nothing was going to get in the way. Jonah's heart may have been so hard that we didn't see him repent at all in this episode. But we still see everyone else repent. We don't see them negotiating with God to calm the storm, right? No, they make vows after God delivers them from the storm. This isn't an emotional, God, if you just get me out of this, I promise I'll... This is serious. God, I saw what you did. I fear you. I submit to you. No ifs, just here I am. Even in Jonah's rebellion, God saves those that may have never heard his name otherwise. Right? Jonah was never supposed to be on that ship. Jonah was never supposed to have met those men. Yet God uses that to save them. With or without our cooperation, God's sovereignty always prevails. But not only do we see God's sovereignty, we see his mercy. We see him flood mercy on the repentant, those who would turn from their ways and to him. Let's be very clear. The sailors were bystanders here. But they weren't innocent bystanders. They were pagans. They were idol worshipers. They deserved death. But they went from fearing a deadly storm to fearing the one who commanded it. They went from praying to many gods to praying to the one true and living God. Psalm 145.9 The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So if you're running from God today, 
whether you have heard the gospel or never have heard before, would God not delay his storm for you much longer? And when it comes, I pray that your knees will buckle in submission to your ultimate judge, that you will act and respond in heart, in spirit, and in truth like the sailors, not like Jonah. Because like Jonah, you run away from God. You seek out distractions. You hide yourself from others in sin. You lie. You numb yourself from the truth. You rationalize your sins. Like Jonah, you care more for your sin than for others. While Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Turn to another person who fell asleep in a storm. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. One day he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and they sailed, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Both Jonah and Jesus were asleep when this storm happened. Both Jonah and Jesus were with expert mariners who panicked from the storm. Both Jonah and Jesus were woken up to do something about the storm. But Jonah, on the boat, was surrounded by strangers who wanted to preserve his life. Jesus, on the cross, was surrounded by mockers who wanted to destroy his life and was deserted by those he loved. Jonah was thrown into the waters to calm the wrath of God. But Jesus calmed the storm because he threw himself into the ultimate wrath of God and died the death that we deserved to give you the reward that we could not earn. Because while Jonah was left for dead, Christ was raised to life. And there's a day coming when you will not be able to run anymore. You will not be able to row anymore. Time will run out. And you will either die tossed by the waves, or you will hide in Jesus, who by his blood has given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Because God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in its totality. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Would you leave your sin? Would you stop running like a fugitive? Let go of the oars and surrender your hands to Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are a sovereign God. We acknowledge that you are a God in in control of every single molecule. And God, you know our hearts. You know the deepest depths of our minds and our hearts. And so would you allow us to be searched by you and would you expose the sins and distractions in our lives so that we might repent and turn to you in spirit and in truth lord for those who do not know you would you you not leave them alone lord would you shake their hearts violently until they can see their own sin and see how wonderful and glorious you are for sending your son to die in our place so that we might receive righteousness in him and have eternal life 
And it is in his name, that very name, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, that we pray. Amen.